much, Lord, for the study of your word, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would just, uh, Lord, meet us here in this place this morning. Father, may you speak to us through your word as we just desire to meet you here, Lord. Uh, minister to us, Father God, and may your word just come alive to us this morning, Lord. And for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Awesome. So as we begin to Luke chapter 6, if you remember, we've been now entering into the public ministry of Jesus. And a couple of weeks ago, we studied how uh, he made himself known that, that he's the Messiah by one getting baptized by John the Baptist. And, by, and John the Baptist saw the witness of the Holy Spirit. He said he saw the Holy Spirit descend upon him and rest in the form of a dove. And then Jesus went to the temple. He took the scroll of Isaiah. He picked it up there in, in, the, in, in, in Isaiah. He began to read. And he says, hey, today this is fulfilled in your presence. Right? Declaring himself as a Messiah. He began to do different miracles. We've seen him uh, heal a leper. Heal a person who was paralyzed from the, from the waist down. And at the same time, though he's doing these awesome and great miracles, uh, a lot of the religious leaders, they begin to kind of take notice of him, right? They're saying, who is this guy? Why We know who he is. He's a carpenter's son. Isn't he from Galilee? All of a sudden, he's claimed to, to be the, the Messiah, the Christ, right? So they're watching him carefully. And they're kind of just, from this point on, keep this in mind that wherever Jesus goes, he has a group of followers. He has a group of people who just want to listen to him speak. He has a group of people who come to him to be healed of any uh, sicknesses. But also he has a group of people who come to him uh, for criticism, right? These religious leaders who are just uh, following him everywhere he goes and just listening to his words and just waiting for that aha moment to, uh, to criticize him. And we see that, that there was already one instance where they try to throw him over a cliff and kill him, right? So that's their intention. Eventually they are going to kill him by, by crucifixion. So keep that in mind as we go into chapter 6 because it says, Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and they ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answered them and said, have you not even read this? That when David, that, that what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate some of the showbread and also gave some of those with them, which is not lawful for, for, any, for anyone but the priest to eat. And he said to them, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. And so we see that in the previous uh, chapter, again, we were introduced to this group of religious rulers and leaders called the scribes and the Pharisees, right? They would have had the, the spiritual authority there in Israel as far as the Jews are concerned. And so they questioned Jesus back in chapter 5, and, and they told him, hey, why do the disciples of John and our disciples fast often? We fast twice a week, but your disciples don't fast. Right, so again, they're beginning to just kind of nitpick at Jesus' ministry. The first thing they got him with was, uh, why do your disciples, you know, they don't fast and our disciples do. Right? And Jesus, his response was, hey, well, can the, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? Right? He, and then now they, they bring a second accusation to him. And they said, hey, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? As they saw that, that the disciples, as they were walking through a, a field of grain, right, they began to just pluck the, the heads of wheat. And they began to eat them. And they're like, hey, it's a Sabbath day. Right? You're not supposed to do that. And so now they're questioning him about keeping the Sabbath. Right? And so they're just after him, watching his every move, trying to accuse him of some kind of sinful act. And so their accusation was, again, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? That's their accusation. Keep in mind, Jesus being God and Jesus being perfect, Jesus being holy, and he did not break God's law. Right? He said, I came to fulfill the law. Right? He, he, if he would have broke God's law, it would have made him a sinner. He's not a sinner. 
But their accusation is they're accusing him of being a sinner. They're accusing him of breaking God's law. They're accusing him of doing what is not holy to do on the Sabbath day. Now, the Old Testament law said that you were not supposed to do any type of work on the Sabbath, but just rest. Right? It was a, a law that was given to Moses through God. And so when God instituted the Sabbath law in Israel, it was intended to give them rest from their labors. Right? It was never meant to be like this meticulous, like burdensome thing, right? which it is now. Um, if you go to Israel today, and even in some places here in the United States, right, but if you go to Israel today and you observe the Jews, man, they, they, they keep it very, very meticulously, very religiously, very even sometimes like uh, a burdensomely. You go to, uh, to a hotel. If you've ever been to Israel, you'll see this. You go to a hotel, and on Friday evening when the sun goes down is the beginning of the Sabbath. So they have special uh, elevators that are Sabbath elevators that, that stop at every single floor so that you don't have to press a button because for them, pressing a button is considered work on a Sabbath. And so you'll get in the, in the and if you get in that elevator and you're, you're like on uh, floor eight, you got to stop at every single floor. So just know that if you ever go to Israel. But what the funny thing is that is that you go to the to the regular elevators and the Jews will go in there and they'll tell you like, hey, can you press uh, floor seven for me? Right. But they won't do it. They won't touch the button. But they'll tell you, hey, can you press the button for me? Right. And this is kind of what has been going on uh, since Jesus day. Right. They had these different laws there in Israel. Right. They were so uh, like uptight about keeping the Sabbath and all these different laws. But yet they would work themselves around it. Right. And they would work around the law so that they could still do what they needed to do. All kinds of different things. Right. For example, in Jesus time, uh, they 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 came to the conclusion or they came to the to, to the understanding that it was considered a burden or it was considered work to tie a knot on a rope. Right. And so they couldn't go down and, 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 and get the water from a well because they need to tie a, a, a bucket to rope. Right. And so but they said that it was lawful for a woman for a woman to gird her 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 her, her, her I don't know what to call it, her clothes right her rope uh, to, to 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 tie a knot on her rope and so what they would do is that she would tie the the rope to the bucket and then the rope or the rope to the rope and they would say all right well look we're not we're not working because I'm using my rope to tie it to the bucket instead of directly to the rope so all these different little things like that that they would do in order to get around the Sabbath and now they're getting to Jesus and they're saying hey you're not doing what's lawful to do on the Sabbath right but we see that again when God instituted the Sabbath law it was never meant to be this burdensome thing right that's not God man God is not trying to put these heavy trips on us even though a lot of people live their Christian walk like like God is don't do this. Don't do that. Don't say that. Don't dress like that. Don't listen to this. Hey, man, that's not God. Right? The Bible says that the commandments of God are not burdensome. And so when God instituted the Sabbath law there in Israel, it was, it was meant to give them rest from their labors. Right? So they can take time to seek God. That was the whole point. It wasn't like, all right, well, we're not working today on the Sabbath. Let's uh, binge watch movies all night. No, it was meant to give them rest from their labors so that they could take time to seek the Lord, to just rest in the presence of God. That's it, right? But the question came up, you know, uh, what is considered to what is considered work, right? They had this this law, hey, you're not to do any work on the Sabbath, and then someone said, well, what's what does God mean by work, right? And then this they it led to a whole rabbit trail of different laws, right? Which eventually led to uh, the writing of the Talmud, uh, which is uh, an oral law given by the Jews, uh, which is pretty much like a, a commentary on other laws. So they said, all right, is this considered work? Is this considered work? And they had this whole law, like 600 something different sub laws added to the law of God, right? To, so they could be able to decipher what is considered work, right? And what's not, right? So they came up with all these different scenarios which are considered work or not work and which they're allowed or not allowed to do, right? There's just these ritualistic uh, traditions. That's what they were. 
And so Jesus, notice Jesus' response to them. He said, have you not read? Man, he tells, keep in mind, he's talking to the religious leaders. He says, well, have you not read? Man, these guys being so snobby and being so stuck up and, being, and taking such pride in their, in their, in their religious uh, uh, scholarly, right? They would have been like, hey, what do you mean have I not read? Don't you know who you're talking to? Don't you know I'm a scribe? Don't you know I'm a Pharisee? Don't you know I'm a, I'm a religious leader? Don't you know I'm an authority here in Israel? And so Jesus, he responded to me. He says, hey, have you not read? So they would have been like, man, deeply offended by this. You know, it would have been a blow to their ego. Have you not read? But we see that, that, that they are, again, that they are these religious leaders in Israel. And they pride themselves in, in the knowledge and the keeping of the scriptures. But we see that Jesus is pointing out that though they knew the scriptures and though, though they studied the scriptures carefully, man, they missed what was really important. That's what he's pointing out. He's saying, have you not read? It's not that Jesus didn't know that they hadn't read. Of course, he knew that these guys dedicate their whole lives to studying the, the, the law of Moses. But, it, but he's, he's trying to get a point across, right? He's going uh, towards the, the, the deeper issue, right? He's saying, look, man, you're missing what's really important. And you're, all your study, you're missing what's really important. You know, and that's allowing those scriptures to minister and work in our hearts. In another, another gospel, Jesus would tell the religious leaders, he says, uh, you study the scriptures for in them you think you have life. But yet you won't come to me so that I can give you life. You know, and those scriptures that you study, they're those that speak of me. But yet you won't come to me. Right? That's what he said to them. He says, you, you study the scriptures because in them you think you have life. But yet they speak about me and you won't come to me. Right? And that was the issue in Israel. Right? That they were so caught up in just the, the religionistic keeping of the law and putting these heavy trips on people. But yet they were not getting any closer to God. And so we see that by Jesus saying this, you know, we see that it is possible for a person to know scripture from, man, like the back of their hand, you know, from back and forth, from beginning to end, know scripture and yet not be inwardly changed. It's possible. Man, I've met people like that who I'm just having a regular conversation and boom, they begin to throw all the scriptures at you and it, be, it becomes a battle of you. Who knows more scripture? I'm just like, whoa, whoa, whoa man, I, I don't want none of that, man. I'm just, hey, I'm just here for regular conversation. Right? And, 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 they, and instead of being like this, uh, this edifying type of thing where, you know, we could edify one another through, through scripture and where you could just kind of give good counsel and just, you know, instead of it being a blessed time, it becomes, it becomes this competition. And for them, the Bible becomes this platform for their ego. I know more than you. Right? Man, it, I've had it happen to me. Or maybe you guys have had it happen to you too. Right? Hey, you shouldn't do this because this is I'm like, hey, man, I'm just trying to live. <laughs> I'm just trying to walk with Jesus, man. And so we see that, that, that this, this is the crowd that Jesus was talking to. Right. And so we see that uh, that Jesus, you know, he answers them. And yet we see that he references an Old Testament story about King David to kind of get his point across. And he references a story from First Samuel, chapter 21. Right. About David at this point uh, in David's life. David is not king yet, but he's he's kind of he's he's under Saul's uh, 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 ruler rulership. Right. He's there in the kingdom of Israel. He's under Saul and Saul becomes to get jealous of King David. So he begins to kind of chase him out. He wants to kill him. And so David, uh, he's forced to just kind of pretty much flee for his life for a few years. He goes and he hides out in some caves where eventually a group of about 400 men joined to him. All of them are just, uh, they we're told that they were, they were in debt. They were criminals. They were murderers. They were pretty much like this, the worst of the worst. And, and David becomes the leader of this whole crew, right? And they become David's mighty men. And so in one instance, as David is running away from Saul because Saul is chasing him, we're told that, man, the guys were hungry. They're on the run. They didn't have time to sit down and eat. They didn't have any money. They couldn't keep a job. And so as they're on the run, David goes to the priest there in Israel. And it says this in 1 Samuel 21. 
It says, Now David came to Nob, the, uh, to Abimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David. And he said to him, Why are you alone? And no one is with you. And so David said to Ahimelech's priest, the priest, he says, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. Or, he says, And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. So he's lying, David. Goes to the to, to the priest there in the in the temple, and the priest is right away. He's like, wait, wait a minute, what's going on? Why are you alone? Where's King Saul? Not knowing that King that, that David was on the run, and so David lies to him. And he says, uh, he sent me on a mission. It's a top secret mission, and he told me not to tell anyone. That's why he's not here with me. And then notice what happens. It says, verse three says, now therefore, what have you on hand? He says, give me five loaves of bread in 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 my hand, or whatever you, or whatever you could find. And the priest answered David and said. There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have at least kept themselves from women, meaning if, if they're clean uh, ceremonially, then David answered the priest and he said to them, Truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy. And the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessels of this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread, but there the show bread which has been taken which has been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day that it was taken. And so what's going on is that as, as David and his, and his mighty men, right, they're on the run, they're hungry, they go to the temple, he tells the priest, hey man, we're hungry. And, and he lies to him pretty much. He says, oh, uh, we're on a mission, you know, but we're hungry. And, the, and he says, do you have anything to eat? Do you have any bread for us? Any common bread? Now, as we're going through the Old Testament law there in Leviticus, in Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers, we see that, that there was a, a sacrifice Right, uh, that, that 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 the people were supposed to to do there at the temple, and it was a, a sacrifice of grain offering, which is you know like they would offer up these fresh loaves unto God, and when they became they, when they became stale, the only person who could eat those loaves they weren't to throw them away because they were considered holy. They sacrificed them to God, right, and they were just kind of put on a table. It was a table of the showbread. It was called, and it was like a, an offering unto the Lord. It was supposed to be a beautiful offering unto God, right? It was like an offering of their labors. But when, once, once the bread started getting old and stale, what they were to do, they couldn't throw it away, but the priest had to eat it. They couldn't throw it away, and only the priest could eat it. And yet King David, he goes there with this 400 outlaws, and he says, hey, man, we're hungry. And the priest says, hey, well, we don't have any more common bread, but uh, we have this holy bread. And here, if you, if you want, you can eat it. And what did David do? He said he ate it. Him and all those, all those outlaw guys, they ate the bread. And so Jesus... Brings up the story from the Old Testament to this uh, to the scribes and the Pharisees, pointing out this: that the law was made for man, not man for the law. And he's pointing out a principle that they had completely missed: that human need, you know, human need overrides the law. David was hungry; he was starving; he was going to die. You know, and you think I was just going to let him die because oh, well, you know what? Hey, you're not a priest, so get on, man. Why don't you go starve to death? No. Right? We see that that's not God. We see that human need is more important than religious ritual. That's what Jesus was trying to get the point across. Human need is more important than religious ritual. There's a scripture in Hosea in the Old Testament, Hosea 6.6, 6, that God says, he says, For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Right? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For example, I mean, man, there's people who do all kinds of crazy things in the name of a religion or in the name of, you know, of rituals or in the name of traditions, things that, that God is not, you know, putting on people to do, right? I mean, as we're, we're, as we're driving down, we saw the, there's a church right there called the Jehovah's Witnesses, and 
you know, I, I used to be part of them when I was young, so I could, I could, I could say, I could talk about them. You know, I felt comfortable talking about them. But man, you know, they do different things. They go knock on doors. They do different things, right? And 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 and, and their understanding of keeping the law. One of the things that they do is that they don't um, they don't accept blood transfusions because they, they misinterpret and they misquote an Old Testament law that says that the blood is in the life, that the life is in the blood. And so one of the things is that they reject blood transfusions. So, man, there's a lot of them that, that would be on their deathbed or their kids need a blood transfusion and, and they refuse to get it because, no, because we're going to break God's law. Right? And, they're, and they're missing the whole point completely. They're missing the whole point. I used to work with the guy who was extra who was witnesses and who was completely bitter against his mom because they let one of their siblings die because of this lack of, uh, of, 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 of hospital care because of these things. Right? And it's like, man, they're missing the whole point. Right? The law is not meant to be this heavy trip, this heavy burden on us. You know, again, the law was made for man, not man for the law. Right? Not that we're supposed to be subject to it, you know, at, at all times. And so we see that, that, that Jesus, again, in addressing him, he, he brings up his Old Testament scripture and really this principle throughout the whole law. Right? And he says, again, he tells them that, 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 that human need is more important. Human need is more important. Right? Now, that's the difference between religion and relationship. Religion says, do, 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 do. You do, you do, you do, you do, you do. You keep, you keep, you keep, you keep. You obey, you obey, you obey, you obey, you obey. And relationship does, says, he already did. God already did it all. What do we do? Hey, man, we just receive. Everything we do for the Lord, everything that we're doing, it, it's out of love. Right? It's not out of obligation. Right? I, I serve God not because I'm obligated to. I don't serve God not because I said here that you got to. No, I serve God because I love God. And I'm grateful for what he did in my life. I sense a calling in my life, you know, and, I, and I'm obedient to the calling, it's a, but it's a response of love, right? And everything that we do for the Lord, it's a response of love. And that's the difference between religion and relationship, right? What we do is out of love. It's out of the heart, right? It's not out of, uh, out of, out of impulsion. It's just, hey, it's out of, it's a response to love, to God's love, right? And yet again, these guys, they're putting these trips on, on, on Jesus and on his disciples. They're saying, look, man, they're doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And yet they're not realizing, man, these guys are hungry, why don't you go get something to eat? <laughs> All right? They're following him. They, they left everything to follow him. Right? You just came from your house and you're, you're, you're well fed. Why don't you give them something to eat? Something like that. You know? And then notice Jesus responds again to him. He says, the son of man, which is a reference to himself. He says, the son of man is also Lord of a Sabbath. And so he's, in, in, in my translation, he's telling him, he's like, look, man, you guys are tripping on them because they're, they're breaking the Sabbath law. But yet I'm the God of the Sabbath law. And I'm not tripping on him. <laughs> so look, they're with me, right? That's what he's telling them. And he says, hey, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He says, look, you guys are, are tripping on the Sabbath law, but yet they're with me, man. I'm the one who wrote the Sabbath law. I'm the one who gave them the Sabbath law. They're with me, <laughs> right? He says, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now, now one thing that, that, that I love about this whole little scenario, right? it's an interesting scenario, but one thing I love is that in the first few verses, it says that, as he went through the grain field, he says that his disciples plucked their heads of the grain and they ate them. They knew that all eyes were on them. They knew that these religious leaders were watching them. They knew that there was multitudes following them. They knew that they were kind of the spotlight. They knew it was the Sabbath and they knew that it was considered uh, wrong to, to pluck the, the, the heads of grain on the Sabbath. But yet they're walking with Jesus and they just have this freedom about them. Right? They have this boldness about them where, man, we're with Jesus, man. Yeah, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat, man. They have this boldness about them, right? this freedom. And, and really, that's, that's, that's a beautiful picture of the believer. Right? As we walk with the Lord, man, we have this freedom about our walk with God. Right? This beautiful freedom that you can experience in the Lord. 
right? That's that freedom that comes when we have a relationship with God. Knowing, look, man, there's no shame. There's no shame. There's forgiveness. God's not holding me, you know, holding me to this. God's not, look, God forgave me, right? There's no shame in this, right? God knows me. He's forgiving me. He's watching me. He's called me righteous. He calls me the son. He calls me his daughter. I'm just walking with them, right? That's that freedom that comes when we have a, a genuine relationship with God, right? Freedom from bondage, freedom from legalism, freedom from all these heavy trips, right? And I, and I feel like I'm one of those disciples who are like, man, you know, I'm with Jesus, man. I'm just, I don't care if it's a Sabbath. I'm hungry. We're walking with the Lord right now, right? And this, they have this beautiful freedom. Again, this beautiful picture of, of the life of the believer when, when, when you just, man, surrender it all to God and recognize that, look, man, you're justified. God sees you as justified. God sees you as forgiven, not because of what you did, not because of what you can do, not because of what you can give God, but simply because of your belief in Jesus Christ, right? Hey, man, Jesus is Lord of my life. He's my Savior. He's my everything. He's my everything, right? Man, I, there's nothing I can do for God or nothing I, to gain His love. He already loves me with everything that he, with all the love that He could ever love me with, right? And that same, same goes true for you, right? We don't have to work to gain His love. We don't have to work to gain His acceptance. We don't have to work to gain His forgiveness. You already gave it out, man. And you have this freedom about you once you realize that in your mind that, hey, man, who cares, man? This guy could be saying this about me. This could be going on. You know, they could say this. You know what? I'm walking with Jesus and I'm hungry. <laughs> and verse 12 says, sorry, verse 6 says, Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And so the scribes and Pharisees, says they watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath that they might find an accusation against them. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, he says, arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy? And verse 10 says, and when he had looked around at all of them, he said to the man, he says, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage. That's the religious, the religious leaders. Says they were filled with rage and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Notice that instead of being happy, man, what a crazy miracle just happened right before our eyes. Man, praise God. Instead, they were filled with rage and they discussed amongst, amongst each other what they should do to Jesus. Man, what are we going to do with this guy? That's what was going on. Right? But interesting that again, it says as, as they watched him closely, it says that the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely whether he would heal on the Sabbath or not, right? Man, I like that. I like that. I like that because they knew what he was going to do, right? They knew what he could do. They knew that what he would do. They knew what he was going to do, right? And he, they knew that he would do it. So they were watching like, man, we know he's going to heal that guy. I love that they could say that about the Lord. I, man, we're watching him. I know he's going to be compassionate to that sinner. I know he's going to forgive that guy. I know he's going to heal that guy. I just know it. That's a good thing. That's a good thing to know that that's who our God is. You know, compassionate and loving Savior. Right? Reminds me of the words of Jonah. After Jonah rebelled against the, com the command of God, right? God calls him to go preach at Nineveh. He says, no way, Lord. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. He rebels. After some, some, some dealing on Jonah's side, uh, he eventually obeys. He goes and he preaches uh, there, there in, in, in Assyria. And... As a result of his preaching, a bunch of people repent, right? The whole nation repents. And what does Jonah do? He goes and he sits on a hill and he begins moping. He's like, I knew it. He says, I knew it. God, I knew you were going to forgive them. That's why I didn't want to go. Because I knew you were going to forgive them. Right? 
God knew that, that Jesus, I mean, Jonah knew that God was a compassionate God. He knew that he was a forgiving God. And that's why he didn't want to go preach to these Assyrians because, man, they were his enemies. He says, man, I knew it, God. I knew you were going to be merciful and show them compassion and forgive them. Right? And these Pharisees, as they're watching Jesus, they're saying, man, I we knew he was going to heal that guy. Man, I love that we can say that about the Lord. Right? He's not this unpredictable God. Is he mad today? Is he happy today? Is he, is, he, is, he ha- is he glad with me today? Am I on his good side? Am I on his bad side? No, man. God is a God of love. God is a God of justice. God is a God of mercy. Right? And, and, and God is, is, is a compassionate God. And we don't have to you know, worry. Oh, is he going to get moved today? Can I approach God today? I've been messing up. I've been sinning. So is he going to cast me away today? Or is he going to forgive me today? Oh, man. That's not who God is. But as they're watching him again, it says that they knew. Right? They're watching because they knew that he was going to heal the guy. But we see that there's a lot of people like that, right? It's like they've heard about Jesus, they've seen what he can do in someone else's life, but yet they won't come themselves so that they can receive the same. They're watching this guy, they're watching Jesus, and they, they, they're hearing his message, they're hearing uh, what, what he can do, they're hearing what he's saying, they're seeing him, him heal all kinds of people, but yet they themselves won't come so that they could be healed as well, right? And again, there's a lot of people like that, right? They've heard of Jesus, they quote, know Jesus. They've seen what he can do in someone else's life, but they just kind of stand on the sidelines like, I'm just watching. I don't want to come and receive myself. And that's what these guys were doing, right? They, they, they never got close enough for a personal encounter with Jesus. And I mean the heart, right? They were there in the same crowd, but I mean their heart never got close enough for a personal encounter with Jesus. And so we're told, again, that Jesus knew their thoughts. And he asked them, he said, hey man, is it lawful to do, on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save a life? Or to destroy. Later on in the gospel, we're told that, that they're going to trip him up again about, about, about the Sabbath law, about breaking the Sabbath. And he, he, he pretty much jams them all up. And he says, all right. He says, which one of you guys, if you have an ox or you have a donkey or you have a sheep and he falls into a, into a ditch on a Sabbath day, which one of you guys aren't going to go down there and, 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 and draw him out? Because he knew that was the custom of the day. Hey, it's a Sabbath day, but if one of your animals falls into a ditch, it's not considered work to, to pull them out. Why? Because that animal is going to sustain your house. Because that animal is going to give you food. Because that animal is going to give you uh, income. So it, when it had to do with that, it was okay for you. Even though, even though it was a Sabbath day, it was okay for you to get all your neighbors. Hey, let's get a rope. Let's, let's get this guy out of here, man. It's all right. Let's save my, my livestock. And so Jesus calls them out. He says, look, man, on the Sabbath day, which one of you guys won't go down there and save your animal if he falls down there? But yeah, you're, you're all mad because I'm healing, I'm making someone whole on the Sabbath day. All right, so again, he's getting to the heart of the issue of these people. And again, verse 10, it says, And when he looked around on them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored, as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and disgust with one another, what they might do to Jesus. And verse 12 says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountains to pray, right, and continued all night, in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from, from them, he chose 12, whom he also named apostles. And we have the names of these guys. Simon, whom he also named Peter. Uh, Andrew, his brother. James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. This is James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot. And also Judas, the son of James. And Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So there were two Judases. Right. Now, interesting because, again, this is one of the most, man, I don't want to say one of the most important because everything that Jesus did was important, especially in his earthly ministry. But even for us, I mean, man, this is one of the most like crucial points right now in Jesus' ministry where he was going to call the 12 disciples unto himself to be, you know, his, his 12 boys, 
the, 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 the close group, right? The apostles. Now, apostle just means a sent one. That's all it means. The word apostle means being sent out, to be sent out. Right? That's all it means. And so we're told that, that Jesus prayed all night to God before he chose his guys. So keep in mind that, that, that Jesus prayed all night before he called 12 unto himself. Luke 10 tells us that there was at least 70 guys who, who were considered disciples. But out of those 70, or at least those 70, he called 12 to be you know, the close group, the ones through whom uh, they were going to set the whole world on fire pretty much. Right? In the book of Acts, it was said about these 12 guys, the 12, the 12 apostles. It says they have, they have flipped the world upside down right? because of the impact that they had in the world. It was through these 12 guys that the gospel pretty much reached the whole world. It was through these 12 guys that the church was born. It was through these 12 guys that the gospel went out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the end of the world. Of the world. It was through these 12 guys. So you can imagine how important it was to choose the right guys. This was an important thing. And so you would think that after praying all night, you would think that after God the Son prays God the Father all night to choose 12 guys through whom he's going to work through, through whom he's going to establish the church here in the world, here on earth, through you would think, you know, that he would be directed to choose strong, wealthy, prominent individuals, right? Good members of society, influential people to follow him. You would think, you know, I mean, that's my understanding. In my, in my worldly understanding, in the, in the world eyes, you would think, right, man, I'm, I'm going to choose 12 guys to be my 12 boys. I'm going to choose the best ones. If you're at work and they tell you, all right, man, choose 12 guys to help you out. You're going to choose the strongest ones, the ones that are most, most skilled, more uh, dedicated, all these guys, right? The best guys. And yet, we see who, um, who Jesus chose. Right? We see that instead he chooses 12 common, blue-colored, sometimes rogue individuals. Man, some of them were uneducated. Uh, some of them were previously violent <laughs> or had a questionable past. We're told about one guy, his name is uh, Simon, and they call him Simon the Zealot. It says Simon the Zealot. Um, if you didn't know who was Zealot, you know, there's a lot of different terms for, 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 for Zealots, right? Zealousy just means when you're like super passionate about something where, uh, you know, it just kind of takes over your life. But we see that, that in, the, in the New Testament uh, context, the Zealots, there was a group of Zealots, of Jewish Zealots. There were a group called the Zealots, right? And they were a party who were zealous for the Jewish independence, Keep in mind that this time Rome was kind of presiding over over uh, over Judea, and so uh, the the Jews weren't free in a sense, right? They had to answer to Rome, and so the Jewish zealots of Jesus' time were this group of people who were just man, they were zealous for the independence of Israel, so much so that that, that their whole plan and plot was to overthrow Rome. So they were causing riots, they were causing mobs. It was like man, like a, a, the summer of love of 2020 here in the Bible, right? It's like man, fires, all kinds of things out, out there in Rome. Right? They were doing all kinds of stuff to overthrow Rome. And they were looking forward to the Messiah coming because they believed that the Messiah was going to overthrow Rome and establish his kingdom there in Israel. Right? They hoped to accomplish this by, again, by inciting uh, the people to rebellion, by driving the Romans from Israel, by establishing this, uh, this theocracy there in Israel, saying, no, you know, Rome's not going to rule over us. God's going to rule over us. And they were also known to target Jews who were sympathetic to Rome. Meaning, man, if there were any Jews who were kind of like, oh, you know, Rome's all right, or, you know, uh, or, or who were government employees, like Matthew, right? They were known to target these guys, to attack these guys uh, brutally, violently, and even kill them. And yet, here we have, you know, Simon the Zealot being a disciple of Jesus. And all these different guys, right, that, that Jesus calls among himself, right? 
We see that within Jesus' group of 12 were, man, there were two guys who uh, couldn't be around each other if it wasn't for Jesus. Simon the Zealot and Matthew the Tax Collector. To, to Simon the Zealot, Matthew the Tax Collector would have been a traitor. He's a traitor to Israel. Right? He's a traitor to our people. We've got to get rid of this guy. Right? Because Matthew worked for the government. He was a city employee. Right? He was a Jew who was working for Rome and, and, uh, and collecting taxes from the people and ripping them off. And yet here we have Simon the Zealot and Matthew the Tax Collector both following Jesus. Man, only God can do something like that. Sometimes I trip out, man. We're at church and I look around at the different personalities, different, different individuals that are in church and you think, man, only God can bring such a group of diverse people together for one cause. You think, you know, man, only God can bring a group of such different people with different interests, different backgrounds, different passions, different, you know, interests, and different uh, 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 histories. But yet we all love Jesus. We all have one thing in common. That is that we just, man, we desire to follow the Lord. That's it. We desire to follow the Lord. Right? That's amazing. Again, now, and some of the group that we have here, we have, again, James and John, who are brothers. Uh, elsewhere in the gospel, the thing is that Matthew, he calls them the sons of thunder <laughs> because there were guys who were just given to their anger, right? They were given to their emotions. There was a time where, where, uh, there, where Jesus was doing ministry and, and as he was passing through, through a certain town, the people rejected Jesus and, and, uh, and, and James and John said, hey, God, hey, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven and consume these guys right now? Should we just get rid of these guys? And Jesus said, hey, man, that's not what it's about. Right? So James and John, the, son, the sons of thunder, uh, we have uh, Peter and Andrew, who are uneducated fishermen. And yet, man, again, as we look at this different group of people, we think, man, how could God ever use you know, individuals like this? And then we wonder, you know, if God can ever use someone like us. And I trip out because, man, God, we see that God called the you know, 12 of these most, of the most kind of um, craziest characters to himself. And yet we wonder if God could ever use me. Like, man, God can use someone like this. Right? God can use any single one of us. Right? And sometimes we think that we have to be you know, educated, whether it be this or that, or have this degree, or go through this program, or whatever. And man, that's not what it's about. Paul would speak to the church at Corinth, and he would say, hey, you know your colleagues, brother, that many, not many of you are, are wise. Right? Not many of you guys are, are prominent. Right? He says, but yet God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And he's chosen the base things of this world to confound you know, that which is strong. And that's what God chooses. There's this, um, there's this uh, little article I came across as I was doing my studies. And it's, it's, I'm going to read it for you guys. It's really fun. It's like this. Um, someone, someone wrote it out. It's like a resume for the, for the, for the 12 disciples, for the 12 apostles. Right? And so just think about it. Maybe some of you guys have heard it. Has anybody heard it? No? All right. So it's like a resume that somebody wrote out you know, on behalf of the 12 apostles like, as if they were giving it to Jesus. And it's, it's cool. You know, it's, it's fun. It's fun, but it's... Uh, it has a, good, uh, has a good point. It says, To Jesus, son of Joseph, from uh, Woodcrafters Carpenter Shop in Nazareth. It says, From Jordan Management Consultants. It says, Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for, for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the tests, the, the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each one of them with our, psycholo- with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It says, the profiles of all, of all tests are included and you will want to study each of them carefully. As part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance, much as an auditor will include some general statements 
This is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. <laughs> it is the staff opinion that most of your nom nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. Because they do not have the team concept, uh, we would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience and managerial ability and proven capability. And it goes on to talk about the guys. It says, Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and he's given to fits of temper. He says, Andrew has absolutely no, quali no qualities of leadership. He says, the two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, place personal interest above company loyalty. This Thomas demonstrate, demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We, we feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew had been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. <laughs> Says James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. Says one of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well. He has a keen business mind and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. Sincerely, Jordan Management Consultants. Kind of funny. It's funny, but it's so true. Right, because again, in the in the world's eyes, man, you look at a group of these guys and you start studying their backgrounds and you think, man, why, why would God call people like that? And you look around the church and you think, man, why would God pe call people like that? Right? But man, this is who God came for, right? For us, for us. I'm not saying that education and all these things are bad things. I'm not, that's not what I'm trying to say. But I'm just trying to say that sometimes we feel too ashamed to come to God or we feel like we're unworthy or we feel like we have nothing to offer. Or we feel like, hey man, we're like the castasites of the world. And God says, oh, I want that one. I want that one. Right? I want that one. And that's who we are. Right? That's what God calls him to himself. Yeah. Through his love. And so going on there, verse 17, it says, And he came down with them, and he stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon. It says, Who came near to him to be their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. And then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples, and he said, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you. And when they revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake, it says, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Notice what Jesus is talking to. Again, verse 20 says that he lifted up his eyes and he's, and, and towards his disciples, right? And he's talking to his followers now. And as he's talking to his followers, he's saying, Blessed are you poor. What? A follower of Jesus being poor? Hey, blessed are you who are hunger now. What? A follower of Jesus being hungry? Blessed are you who weep. What? A follower of Jesus experiencing hardship? Trials? Brokenheartedness? It says, blessed are you when men hate you. A disciple of Jesus being hated? Blessed are you when they exclude you and cast you out as evil for my name's sake. And he's talking to his disciples. 
right? I reject, man, a lot of the prosperity teaching that's out there that says, hey, man, if you're a follower of God, then you should be living in victory and you should be rich and you should own a big house and you should, you know, not go through any trial. And if you're going through something, it's because you don't have enough faith. It's not true. You know, if it was, then Jesus wouldn't address his disciples in this way. He says, blessed are you who are poor, right? Who are, who are hungry, who weep now, right? Who are hated for my name's sake. And he says, for indeed your reward is great in heaven. And the truth is, guys, that man, as, as followers of the Lord, man, we're not, ex we're not exempt from suffering. Nowhere in the Bible does it exempt believers, followers of Jesus from suffering. We're going to go through it. I mean, man, I pray I don't. Right? I mean, who prays for trials? Who prays, man, Lord, give me the biggest trial you got. Take it on. Right? And everyone went to 2023 hoping for the best. Whoever says, Lord, give me your toughest battle. I got this. No, Right? Well, we pray for, for blessing. We pray for the right things. But yeah, we see that we're not exempted from suffering as far as of Christ. But what is promised to us man, is hope through the trials. Right? Jesus calls them blessed. The broken, the poor, the hungry, the hated, the excluded, the outcast. Jesus says, blessed are you. And so for anyone, one of us you know, who may experience, be experiencing those things, man, Jesus says, blessed are you. For your reward is great in heaven. Man, sometimes we forget that life is more than just, man, my everyday nine to five thing, my gig, right? This isn't life, right? Life is about eternal life. Jesus would say this in the Gospel of John. He says, this is eternal life, that they would know you, God the Father, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, knowing God. Right? But we get so caught up in our little world and we think, man, all right, this is what it's about, man. The rat race, this is, what it, this is my life. Got to make something out of this. Yeah, I mean, true. But that's not what it's all about. Right? He says, your reward is great in heaven. Man, there's things that are coming in the next life that things in this life can't even compare to. He says, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. And verse 24 says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you who all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Man, so now Jesus speaks to the people on the other side of the spectrum. Not saying that riches are bad. Man, I know good, godly people who are wealthy. Most of the time, they don't even let it show. Right? But man, God, who, people who God has blessed, right? God has blessed their business. God has blessed the work of their hands. But he's talking about when you let that, those riches you know, get to your heart. Paul will tell Timothy that the root of all, that, that love of money is the root of all evil. Not money, but the love of money is the root of all evil. But he says, man, he says, if, if you're banking you know, your, your status uh, be, before God based on your riches, he says, you have received your consolation. That's it, man. He says, if that's what you think it's all about, he says, that's it, man. That's, what, that's all you get. All right? If I think that, that, that I'm going to be made right in the eyes of God based on what I do or my material possessions, and you know what? That's all I'm going to receive. And he says, then woe is me. He says, woe to you who are full, for you shall hunger. And woe to you who laugh now, he says, for you shall mourn and weep. I'm talking about those who do it uh, spitefully. Or who, 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 who depend their whole life on, on this present situation. That, you know what, man, I'm good now, I'm good now. I don't need God. Like, everything's going good in my life, I don't need God. He says, look, man, it's not going to always be like that. Then he goes on to tell him this. In verse 27, he says, But I say to you who hear, he says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And, and pray for those who spitefully use you. He says, to him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, he says, do not withhold your tunic also. He says, give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask him back. And just as you want men to do to you, 
you also do to them likewise. Verse 32 says, But if you love those who love you, then what credit is that to you? It says, For even sinners love those who love them. Man, how true is that? She says, Look, man, if you think you're righteous because you love those who love you back, that's nothing. Try loving someone who hates you. He says, Man, this is that. there's reward in that. Right? He says, Man, even, even someone who doesn't know God can love you know, another person who, who, who reciprocates that love. But when you love someone who hates you, when you love someone who doesn't want nothing to do with you, and you're just, you know, you're showing them the love of God, he says, Man, there's power in that. Verse 33 says, And if you do good to those who do good to you, then what credit is that to you? He says, For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who to those from whom you hope to receive back, then what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. He says, But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the most high, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. That's a heavy statement. It says that God is kind to the unthankful and evil. Somebody might hear that and say, wait a minute. And what am I doing serving God? What am I doing serving God if, you know, if God is kind to those who are unthankful? Why am I being thankful to God if he's kind to, to those who are unthankful? Why, what am I doing serving God, you know, trying to be good if God is kind to those who are evil? Well, this is what Jesus is saying, that God shows no partiality. And on his end, man, God's going to love. But what you receive depends on you. You think those people are going to receive any of the love of God? Not because God is not willing to give it, but they're not in the position to receive it. Right? And as we position our hearts to hear from God, to receive from God, yeah, God is, God is kind to, to, to all of us, to everyone. Man, to the most evil person out there in the world, yeah, God is kind to them. Because the Bible tells us that, the, that God's desire is for none to perish, but for all to come to salvation. But that doesn't mean that they're ever going to experience the love of God. Right? Because they're probably never going to, they're never going to want to turn to God. Right? Now, Jesus would say later on that God makes it rain on the just and the unjust alike. And this rain that we just received, I see it as a blessing. But notice that God blessed us here in California or whatever, you know, or here in this place, or God blessed, you know, uh, 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 my lawn as much as he blessed, you know, the person over the atheist lawn. Yeah, we both received the same water. We both re- received the same rain. And we both received of God's same blessing. But the difference is that look, man, I can say, look, God, thank you. Thank you for that. I have a relationship with the Lord. And that person doesn't. And then he goes on to say, Therefore be merciful, just as your father also is merciful. Man, I think that's a good key. God is merciful, so why shouldn't I be merciful? And sometimes we think, man, you know, that guy doesn't deserve my mercy. They don't deserve my, my forgiveness. They don't deserve my, you know, anything. But yet God does not withhold anything kind from anybody. And yet God does not withhold mercy and justice and goodness and love from anybody. So who, who do, I, do I think I'm better than God? Right? Do I think I'm above God? To not, you know, show that same love, mercy, and uh, kindness. And then, going on there in verse 37, we'll end with these three verses. It says, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Man, that's like the one verse that everybody knows, even if you're not a believer. Doesn't the Bible say you shouldn't judge? <laughs> it says, Judge not, and you shall not be judged. It doesn't say you should not judge. In the contrary, we're, we as believers, man, we're called to we're we're called to judge, not in a condemning way. But dude, if you think somebody, hey, you're looking for a babysitter, and uh, hey, this person comes comes up, hey, you know, hire me, I'll be your babysitter. And you know, you're, they're all sketchy. They're looking at you weird. They're looking at your kids weird, and you know, there's just something about them. You think you're not gonna judge that person? No, you're gonna judge the character, right? And you're not gonna let them anywhere near your family. So we're called to judge. We're called to be, actually be fruit inspectors. Jesus would say, hey, man, you will know them by their fruit. 
right? For a good tree gives off good fruit, and a bad tree gives off bad fruit. If you go to a tree, to a tree and all the and it's fresh in season, and all the fruit on there is rotten and has worms in it, you know, that's something wrong with this tree, man. You got to cut it down. It's no good. It's no good. But if you go to a tree and, you know, it's, it's giving off good, big, juicy fruit as it should, and it's seasoned, you know, man, you know, this is a good tree. It's got good roots. It's been well watered, right? So we're called to judge, not to condemn, but we're called to judge. We have to judge. Man, every single day we're judges of character. Right, man? You, hey, someone says, oh, man, I'm, I don't want to be a Christian because, oh, everyone's so judgmental. Hey, dude, we judge every single day. Right? I woke up this morning judging. I mean, I get up, I get up in the morning, I go, all right, should I wear a sweater today or a T-shirt? Is it cold or not cold? Yeah, I'm judging the weather. Hey, should I do this? Should I do that? Man, we're, we're judging every single step of the way and we don't realize that. Right? And so Jesus says, judge not <coughs> and you shall not be judged. Condemn not and you, sh- and you shall not be <coughs> condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. There's something special that comes, you know, in that, in that topic of forgiveness that I can't explain it. But we know that we're forgiven based on what Jesus did on the cross. Right? The Bible says that all, every single one of us, we're forgiven, we're, we're, we're given eternal life, we're called sons and daughters of God, we're given you know, righteousness, we're all these things, you know, these beautiful promises and, and gifts of God were given to us because of what Jesus did on the cross and because we, we believe it right, and we receive it. But yet Jesus would say also, he says, he says, forgive your enemies, for if you do not forgive those who trespass against you, then neither can your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. I don't understand that. And I'm not going to try to explain it away and say, oh, well, he didn't really mean that. He said this. But I just know that there's something very specific and very special tied to forgiveness. Where if we can't forgive somebody, it has, man, I, I am careful with what I say. But it, it's even linked to our salvation. Where God, God would say, Jesus would say, man, if you can't forgive somebody, then neither can your Father in heaven forgive you. But I believe in Jesus that did this. I don't know, that's what the scripture says. I'm not going to explain it. I'm just, that's just what it says. Jesus said, if you can't forgive those who trespass against you, then neither can your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. I don't know. Right? But that's what he says. And so we see that, that forgiveness for God is a costly thing. It means a lot because it costs him his son. Right? So when one of us chooses not to forgive, uh, God takes it personal. Right? Because, because it was a costly thing for God. It cost him the life of Jesus. So it goes on to say, we'll end with these three verses. It says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. But, oh, it says, for with the same measure that you use, it will also be given back to you. It says, and he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind, can the blind lead the blind? Sorry, I'll stop right there. I'll stop right there. Because my throat's getting a little itchy. Father God, I just, Lord, thank you so much. I think this is of you, Father. I think you want to just maybe have us stop right there and, and take it slowly. Next week and these few verses, Lord, I know they're definitely important to you and they're important to us. And I want to pray, Father God.